Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey, I've spent a lot of time driving around the Permian Basin over the last year. There were times I put over a thousand miles on my truck in a single week. Signs of the boom were everywhere. But over the last six months, things have taken a slight turn. Most of the patch remains busy, but there are some indications that the boom is cooling. The rig count has declined about 20% over the past year, and Facebook pages dedicated to oilfield job postings have recently shifted in tone. Instead of companies reaching out to anyone with a pulse, you see folks posting things like diesel mechanic, six years experience, looking for anything. Unemployment in Midland and Odessa is still lower than almost anywhere else in the country, but some companies have recently announced layoffs. For one journalist, this slowdown wasn't surprising. It was just a matter of time. I'm Christian Wallace, and this is Boomtown, a podcast about the historic oil boom unfolding right now in the Permian Basin. This week, we're mixing things up. We've actually decided to bring you an extra episode. We'll release the final two chapters over the next couple of weeks, but today, we're devoting the entire episode to a fascinating conversation about the wild, shaky finances of fracking with one of the most acclaimed business reporters of our time. So I'm Bethany McLean. I'm a longtime journalist. I'm a contributing editor at Vanity Fair and the author of a few books, um, among other things. Bethany is being modest here. She started her career as an investment banking analyst for Goldman Sachs. Later, she became one of the first journalists to predict the fall of Enron, one of the biggest scandals in the history of American business. She's the co-author of the best-selling book, The Smartest Guys in the Room, which was turned into an award-winning documentary. 38 counts of fraud and conspiracy, guilty verdicts in the biggest case of corporate fraud in history. Recently, Bethany raised the alarm again, this time in a book about the oil industry, Saudi America, the truth about fracking and how it's changing the world. While researching the book, she discovered that even during the height of today's massive boom, much of the oil industry was actually losing money. In this interview, she explains why and what it would mean for this boom to go bust, not just for West Texas, but for the country and the world. You'll recall from episode three that today's historic boom was made possible by innovations in fracking and horizontal drilling. That's where our conversation begins. This is episode nine, A Dark Horizon. So we'll just start back in 1988 uh, when George Mitchell finally figures out fracking shale for natural gas in the Barnett Shell, um, you talk about in Saudi America, part of what played a role in actually giving rise to the shell boom was the 2008 financial crisis and how the interest rates were so low. 
that these companies could actually take on more debt. Absolutely. So one of the things that has always struck me about fracking is that it unquestionably has changed the world. We've gone from these hand-wringing hearings about um, congressional hearings about impending shortages of U.S. oil and natural gas a decade ago to this idea that that these are freedom molecules, as the mm. as the Trump administration calls them, that the U.S. is now this prolific producer of oil and natural gas such that we never have to worry again. But what really interested me about this was that that was the juxtaposition between that and the fact that the industry actually doesn't make any money. And so while you've talked a lot about the technological gains that have enabled fracking, and those are real and really impressive, the other key component of fracking is capital, because it costs so many billions of dollars to drill all these wells and get this stuff out of the ground, and that <laughs> capital still hasn't come back up out of the ground. And so there's, there's an argument that if it hadn't been for the 2008 financial crisis um, when the Federal Reserve cut interest rates to record low levels in order to spur the economy. That made debt really cheap. So it enabled mm -hmm. frackers to go out and raise the hundreds of billions of dollars that they needed in order to, to go drill. If the debt had been twice as expensive, um, they, they wouldn't have been able to drill nearly as much, and the shale revolution would not be nearly as prolific as it has been. So I guess what was terrible for a lot of people was actually great uh, for oil and gas in that way. And kind of the most fascinating character in your book is Aubrey McClendon. And you kind of say like what George Mitchell did for fracking technologically, uh, McClendon did for raising capital. Uh, you call him America's most reckless billionaire, and he's a tragic metaphor for the industry in some ways. Could you uh, tell me just a little bit more about what drew you to McClendon's story specifically? So I started paying attention to Aubrey McClendon back in 2010, and a longtime source of mine said, and it was a little bit apocryphal, but he said McClendon was the most important man in America. And what he meant by that was that if if McClendon was right and the U.S. Uh, could, could produce cheap oil and natural gas for the foreseeable future, that was going to change everything about our economy, about the kinds of businesses that were located here, the kinds of jobs that were available, and it was going to change geopolitics, too, because our geopolitics politics are still driven in large part by energy supplies. And so at that moment, I just I started watching Aubrey. And he's one of those amazing characters that come along every so often in business, one of those just larger than life figures that you you couldn't make him up if you if you had to. Mm -hmm. If you were trying to imagine a fictional character from scratch, you wouldn't you wouldn't be able to come up with Aubrey McClendon. He was really a Renaissance man with this passionate interest in an antique map collection and just a wine guy to to the hill. At one point, I think he had the biggest wine collection in the world or the most valuable wine collection in the world. He had a collection of antique boats. I mean, he <laughs> just wrote rowboats. I mean, he had homes all over the world, including a house on Lake Michigan. I mean, he was just he was just a guy who was passionately interested in a lot of things. And people really people really liked him. He was an incredible salesman because he believed. The, the thing that distinguishes Aubrey McClendon from the swindlers who mm -hmm. have been at work in, in this industry is that McClendon didn't just put other people's money to work. He put his own money to work. He risked everything he had and then some. And most people think he died broke um, as a result of this. And this is a guy who could have walked away with billions had he um, been the more cynical sort. But he wasn't. He was a believer. Right. Yeah. He, he believed in what he was doing and wasn't trying to scam anyone. I mean, he was putting 
his own money into it. So, and he he went down with the ship not once, not twice, but <laughs> but really three times. He people think he went broke in two thousand and eight when natural gas prices fell and Chesapeake stock collapsed, and Aubrey had margined his shares to go out and borrow more um, and in order to to fund a drilling program. And Goldman Sachs, who had lent him the money, sold his stock out from under him, and he was he was left with nothing. And he rebuilt, and then he got kicked out of Chesapeake in two thousand twelve or two thousand. 2013. Um, and he started again with this um, collection of companies he put together called American Energy Partners. Um, and he leveraged everything he had in order to fund that. He signed personal guarantees. He used his ownership in the Oklahoma Thunder and his um, wine collection um, and his map collection. He used all those things as collateral for, for loans so that he could he could fund this again. So this was a guy who was completely reckless with other people's money, but, but also with, with his own. And there is something romantic and even admirable about that versus the more calculating character who might have, you know, taken a billion off the table here and there just to make sure he, he was out fine, even if everybody else got screwed, right? Right. Yeah. When I started reporting my book, a guy I went to talk to said he was skeptical of McClendon, skeptical of the industry, but that he never let Aubrey into the room for a meeting because if he had, he knew they would have ended up buying a lot of stock and it, and it wouldn't have ended well. Right. And so you guys, you guys talk about George Mitchell, who really gets most of the credit for pioneering the technology that enabled fracking. But Aubrey's the guy who sold it to the world. He's the one who went out to investors literally around the globe and got them to turn over tens of billions of dollars to fund U.S. fracking. And if it hadn't been for that um, influx of capital, the industry wouldn't be what, what, what it is today. So in many ways, the capital was every bit as important as the technology, or the capital was the other side of the technology. Right. It why do you think that that aspect of the oil and gas and the shell rise hasn't been covered as much? Um, people aren't accustomed to thinking in terms of, of cash flow as a way of measuring profitability. And there's some justification for that. This last decade has been the era of coming out of Silicon Valley's, the Ubers and the Lyfts and the you know host of other companies we work where they don't make money. And the idea is they're going to in the future. And if you just invest now, then the profits are going to be there. And that's been the story that the frackers have told, which is we're not making money now, but we will. The technology is getting better and better. And soon, even though we don't make money at this price, we'll be able to, to make money soon. I think another part of the reason why that narrative didn't get played as much is because some of it is dependent on, on oil prices, although I think less so than you might think. So people would say it's not making money and, and believers would say, well, just wait till oil prices go up, right? Mm. The thing is, if you look historically, that didn't actually play out. In 2014, oil was above $100 a barrel for part of the year and the fracking industry still didn't make money because so many of the costs, which you know well, have, having worked on a rig, these costs are variable costs. And when everybody's really busy and the drilling's going crazy, it costs a lot more money, right? Yeah. <laughs> so th yeah. that then cuts into the, the extra profits that are coming out of um, the well. Um, I think the third reason is that people have been pretty monomaniacally focused on the environmental issues. And that's obviously the environmental issues are real and the water usage in the Permian Basin is a, is a huge issue, I, I think. But because of that, when people criticize fracking, they've tended to criticize it through the environmental lens rather than criticizing it through the financial lens. Right. No, that makes sense. 
Uh, just to go back to what you said earlier, I, I pulled a quote from your book that you already nailed uh, part of it. There's a hedge fund firm found that from 2006 to 2014, the fracking firms had spent $80 billion more than they had received from selling oil and gas. Even when oil was at $100 a barrel, none of them generated excess cash flow. In fact, in 2014, when oil was at $100 for part of the year, the group burned through $20 billion. I mean, that's, that's just kind of unbelievable, to be honest. The numbers are pretty staggering, the extent of the capital that has gone into the ground and has not come back up. And thus far, although the fracking industry has always promised, sort of like Tesla, <laughs> that profits are just around the corner, those mm-hmm. profits have yet to materialize. Um, and the much-hyped technological advances that were supposed to enable frackers to make money thus far have been less than they have been cracked up to be, literally cracked up to be. <laughs> they haven't quite materialized. So the idea was, you know, you could drill longer laterals and just put more propens into the ground and more sand into the ground. And thus far, what appears to be happening is that you're getting more oil and gas up more quickly, but you're not extending the life of the well. In fact, the well is wearing out more quickly than it used to. Right. So once you frack a well, it has these great returns and you're producing all this oil. But then after that first year or so, depending on where you are, say, for instance, in the Bakken, 85% of that production declined after the first year in parts of the Bakken. And to maintain that level of production that you have, you've got to spend a lot more money just to frack new wells. And I've heard you describe it as kind of like being on a treadmill Exactly. So that's the core of the economic problem with fracking is that the decline rates are much steeper than they are with vertical wells. So with old vertical wells or with a big offshore drilling project, you might put a lot of capital into getting it going, but then you'd have a well that would produce pretty consistently for a decently long period of time. With fracking, the decline rates are astronomical. So in year in year two, you may be getting 15 to 20 percent of the oil that you did in year one. And so that means if you want to keep producing oil at at the same rate that you were, then you have to keep putting more capital into the ground. There is this great quote from a guy at something called the the, the Post-Carbon Institute, and he wrote, um, in order to meet the forecasts that have been put forward about how much um, oil the U.S. is going to produce, that it's going to require drilling um, almost 1.5 million wells at a Mm. cost of $9.5 trillion over the period from 2017 to 2050, because you need to keep drilling new wells. Wow. He also pointed out that um, the, that the U.S. shale industry has drilled 85,000 wells over the past decade and is still over $300 billion in long-term debt. In other words, it hasn't even paid for what it's already drilled. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about 
how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. One of the things that struck me uh, after I read your book, one of the earlier episodes we have on this podcast talks about the history of oil and gas in West Texas. And we go into the story of the Santa Rita Number 1, which was kind of like the the spindle top of West Texas in a way, the the one that kicked everything off. And so for like the Santa Rita Number 1, you had this guy named Frank T. Pickerel, and he bought all this land, all the, the rights to drill this land in West Texas that was basically deemed worthless at the time. There had never been any production out of this area. And he acquired the drilling leases, and then he went around America for two years basically trying to sell certificates of interest to anyone who would buy into his scheme. So he went around like all the way up to New York and some Catholic nuns invested in these certificates and all these other folks. And like I asked a historian, did any of these people ever see any returns on their investment? And and Dr. Hinton is her name. She was like, no, like most <laughs> likely none of them ever did. And so it's kind of this incredible uh, return to something that was kind of a, a norm in the industry almost a century ago. And I just that's I actually mean, fascinating. Yeah, yeah, that's fascinating and so true. This is an industry that has always been filled with promoters and stock scams and swindlers, and people have made billions when investors have lost their shirts. One of the other things that happened at that time. Um, On December 18th, 2015, President Obama approved the lifting of a 40-year-old ban on the export of crude oil out of America. And you actually begin Saudi America describing this huge tanker leaving the port of Corpus Christi on New Year's Eve with the very first load of exported American crude in four decades. Can you talk a little bit about how that actually has changed the game in oil and gas? So it really has. It's such a big moment. And it's funny that at the time it wasn't even recognized as such. You know, for four decades, we've effectively had this export ban in place flying in the face of our supposed free market principles. But (laughs) it goes goes back to the 1970s when politicians were just freaked out about our dependence on Middle Eastern oil. And so the idea was uh, this is a scarce resource and whatever we have, we, we better keep it close. But amid this idea that we actually have abundance and that because of fracking, we have more than we'll ever need, there was immense political pressure from the industry to overturn the ban on on fracking. There was a lot of pushback from environmentalists. But um, I think the Obama administration had two issues. One is that it did seem on a certain economic level, there was a lot of pressure to fund jobs, fund investment in America in an otherwise weak economy in, in, in the wake of the financial crisis. And saying no to this um, was was tricky. Even the economists in the administration, Democratic economists, were very much in favor of turning over the, the export ban. I think the other issue was that President Obama had lost a lot of political capital in passing health care reform and didn't have it left to fight the export ban. And so it basically got tucked into this year-end spending bill at the end of 2015 and sort of slipped through. And um, the lobbyist who worked on it actually told me a funny story because he was like, 
like, you know, I thought this was a really big deal and I'd worked on this for my entire life and it gets signed and everybody just left town and I had to go have a steak in a Manhattan by myself because there was nobody left to celebrate with. Wow. And it's this big dramatic moment that he thinks he thinks changes everything. And it, you know, it 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 really does. It's been an absolutely dramatic change. And I'm sure if you go to Corpus Christi, you can see just the huge amount of building of infrastructure that's been a result of having this mm-hmm. having this ban overturned. Well, because of that, because of the export ban being lifted, and now all of a sudden you have access to global markets for not just crude oil, but natural gas liquids and other hydrocarbon products, um, it kind of just completely flips the table of our geopolitical position. Um, We're less beholden to the Saudis for certain things. And for instance, like a couple of months ago when 5% of the world's oil supply just suddenly was literally gone up in smoke, the price of oil just kind of shrugged and continued on as if almost nothing had happened. And if the production levels weren't so high, for instance, in the Permian, that would have been a very different uh, reality for everyone on the ground. Yeah. I think that's a really good point. And it comes back to this idea that the production levels have been disassociated with the economics of it, right? People had had been willing to fund it. And so the question is, what happens if people, if investors stop being willing to fund it? And there's some signs that mm-hmm. they are. There's a lot of pressure now for companies to produce profits and not to just drill, baby drill. And so the question is then, what happens to, um, to production growth? Does it remain as robust as it was? And if it doesn't, if it falls dramatically, what does that do to predictions about to, to, to the price of oil? And that's not an easy question to answer because, as you know, there are a million other factors that go into this. But that, to me, is a big one. What if fracking isn't all it's cracked up to be because because the capital dries up and investors start um, start wanting to see a profit? And you have these questions arising at a really interesting time geopolitically because the Trump administration is quite um, aggressive about about using energy as a geopolitical weapon in a way that, well, past administrations couldn't. We didn't have it. But the Obama administration, as we started to shift from scarcity to abundance, they were also pretty determined not to use energy as a geopolitical weapon because we'd been running around preaching to other countries that they couldn't do that. Um, Trump has been quite a bit more aggressive about it. Um, His administration calls it freedom molecules. Um, It's a really interesting and aggressive approach given the um, financially shaky foundation of fracking. Um, I think more broadly, Rit, you do have these these real questions about how the world is changing. I was just talking with Liam Denning, who's a Bloomberg energy columnist on my own podcast. Um, and he was talking about how this whole U.S.-led order of the world that was that had oil really as the centerpiece of the economic and political order is breaking down. Um mainly because of of the advent of renewables that it's just going to be in a decade a very different world than it than it once was so it's sort of it's given those factors it's really interesting to see the stance that the current administration has taken yeah it's not american energy independence which every president since even before reagan has been touting it's now this uh, narrative of american energy dominance. Yes. The whole concept of energy independence is is somewhat fraudulent. And what I 
mean by that is that back in the 70s, when politicians first started talking about it, the U.S. could be energy independent. Our, our, our economy was much more isolated. The price of a barrel of oil was set by the Texas Railroad Commission. There, it, it was a concept that actually made sense on some level. But today, the price of a barrel of oil is set on global markets. It's going to be victim to the events you just described, almost regardless of how much oil the U.S. is producing. That's still going to have some some effect. And nobody is saying that the U.S. is going to be able to supply the world with, with oil, right? And so even in a best-case scenario, even if fracking is as robust as its biggest proponents say it is, China is still, Asian economies are still dependent on the Middle East for their oil supplies. And we, in turn, are dependent on China for a lot of the imports that fuel our economy. So it's not as if we can look away from the Middle East just because we don't need their oil, right? So right, to me, right. that that's that's the, the fatal flaw in this hyping this concept of energy independence. I just don't know what it means in a global economy. Right, right. Could you just talk a little bit about uh, the role the Permian Basin has played in, in this shell boom? Yeah. So it's really fascinating. I never got a good answer to this question. Maybe you have one. But the, the Permian was, was last of the major basins for the technology of fracking to be brought to it. And it's funny because it's no secret that the Permian is a prolific, prolific oil land, right? I mean, mm -hmm. that dates back to the 1920s or even earlier where the bulk of American supply was, was coming out of the Permian. But for some reason, as fracking took off, nobody looked to the Permian, an old-time oil man in uh, Midland, when I asked him that question, he said, it's a little bit like the girl next door. Like you just don't, you know, we'd been drilling here for so long that we just, you know, mm -hmm. we just, we didn't, we didn't look at it differently. Um, so the Bakken, they, people began drilling for oil in the Bakken and in the Eagleford, and then came the Permian. And it turned out to be this just miracle of geology. One geologist I spoke to described it to me as like, at least certain parts of the Permian are like these stacked layers of carpet. So you can get a lot more oil and gas out much more efficiently than in other parts of um, than in other geologies because you can you can drill a lot more with just one well you can reach all these different layers of, of the carpets so you had all this hype coming out of the Permian and you mm -hmm. had this idea that because of the unique formations in the Permian that the break-even cost was going to be much much lower so companies would say they'd be able to break even at 20 25 dollars a barrel so we'd no longer be hostage to something that OPEC might do because the Permian was going to enable this miracle of much, much cheaper oil. And I think at the time of your writing, the Permian was projected to maybe hit 4 million barrels per day by the end of 2000, I think it was 2020, actually. And, and right now we're sitting, as we speak, on nearly 4.6 million barrels per day coming out of the Permian. And now, by some estimates, it's considered to be the most prolific oil field in the world right now. It is. It's been a monster, and it's provided a lot of ammunition for people who say fracking is always going to do more, be better, be bigger, be more powerful than than anybody anticipates. That said, the Permian has fallen short. E mm -hmm. Even some of the people who were previously the biggest bulls about it have, have pulled back a little. And so it's actually been interesting just as that narrative has really taken hold. There have been some little signs of skepticism bubbling up uh, through the cracks. Uh, some of the things that you talk about in Saudi America about there's going to come a day of reckoning that these investors are going to want to see their returns and you see that happening 
in real time right now, some of that skepticism you were just talking about. Uh, the rig counts have been sliding across the U.S. for the last three months or so. You know, as, as the majors are are starting to report their budget spending for next year, they're slashing their budgets over and over again. And, you know, we don't really know what the production is going to look like in the year to come after all these wells have been fracked. So you see some of these indicators that a lot of what you predicted is coming true. Yeah, sometimes I feel like I wasn't quite skeptical enough in my book <laughs> because right. because the news the news in the past year has been decidedly more on the negative side than than on the positive mm-hmm. side. I mean, that said, if I were to be, play devil's advocate to my own argument, I'd say that just because the technological gains haven't, the much promised technological gains haven't appeared yet, don't don't mean they won't, right? Right. We're still, even with fracking, and you probably know the numbers better than I do, but getting, what, 9% of the available oil, of the estimated oil out of the ground? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a tiny amount. And so the idea is you come up with some way to improve that, even a couple of percentage points, and you change the dynamics entirely. And suddenly what didn't make economic sense does. So there always could. That that breakthrough, just like with what George Mitchell did, that breakthrough could be right around the corner, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I, I just wanted to highlight some of the technological changes that have either come to bear uh, since your book came out that are happening right now. But basically, we're just seeing a lot of automation come to the patch. You know, Apple and Microsoft and Google are now monitoring pipelines and, and storage tanks. And I'm sure you've seen this, but the rigs that can walk from one location to another, um, there's just all these things that are almost feel like science fiction in a way that are happening now. Um, one of the big changes from the time you wrote your book until now is most of the sand that was being shipped in to frack these wells was coming in from Wisconsin and the Midwest. And now, just since the beginning of 2018, there's been something like 20 sand mining facilities open up in West Texas. And so those shipping costs has pushed the price per barrel uh, of oil extraction down way further. And it really is kind of like who who knows uh, what it's going to look like in, in the years to come. It is. And so I think making predictions about it, or at least making predictions that you say are set in stone, is a fool's errand. But I'd, I'll play devil's advocate to your argument now. And, yeah. and I'd, I'd, raise a, I'd raise a couple of points. One is that companies have long hyped these break-even numbers. They say, we can break even at $25 a barrel. We can break even at $20 a barrel. And then you look at their consolidated financial statements, and they're losing money. Mm. And so something's going wrong from the people called it, to me, um, corporate math or investor deconomics because they were trying to put together these pitch decks that would show investors a set of economics that weren't real. So they'd show you that they could break even on a well at $25 a barrel oil. And yet then you'd you'd go to the corporate financial statements and they were losing money. Right. Um, and there's also the political risk, right, to, to oil and gas as far as like you've got the Green New Deal, which would seriously change the oil and gas industry and candidates like... Elizabeth Warren talking about uh, banning fracking on her first day in office. Um, We see the earthquakes in West Texas. I mean, uh, I think the term you used in your book was demand destruction. 
Yeah. And what people mean by demand destruction is the idea that renewables and other things are going to fill the gap. And so we may not, we just may not need as much as we think. But you're right about the political risk. And that's, it's one of the really fascinating things about the oil industry is that it isn't just economic or even primarily economic. It's very, very political, right? Mm -hmm. So it's one of the things that makes it so hard to predict is that everything we're saying about fracking could, everything I'm arguing could be irrelevant. It could turn out that the industry is incredibly profitable, that there's this new technological um, breakthrough that makes it incredibly profitable and that there's, the U.S. has more oil than, than we ever knew because of this technological breakthrough. But then Elizabeth Warren could become president and ban fracking, right? right. <laughs> so so right. there's this wild card of politics, particularly in the very, very volatile political times that, that we live in. Right. And and with the rise of renewables, uh, I, I've heard you talk on other podcasts or in other interviews of, about how the rise of natural gas kind of helped signify the end of the era of coal. And while it's still hanging on, it's on its last gasp. And if you have a, a way of storing renewables, a, a battery that can change the way our grid operates, that could also kind of signify the need for oil and gas in, in a world that's increasingly getting warmer. Right. Well, the, my, Liam Denning, who, is on, who I was talking to earlier from my podcast, um, made a point that I hadn't heard before that I thought was really interesting, was that oil bulls point to India and China and say demand from their developing economies is going to keep oil demand skyrocketing for for decades to come. But he said India and China are quite determined not to uh, repeat the mistakes of the U.S. and make their economies dependent on volatile regions of the world like the Middle East. And so they're actively working on, on renewables because you know, they're moving ahead on all fronts. They're trying to secure, China especially, is trying to secure access to all the oil and gas it possibly can. But they're also really pushing forward on, on renewables because they don't want to repeat the mistakes they saw the U.S. make. So Liam raised the interesting question, what if the demand that everybody thinks is going to keep coming from India and China actually doesn't? What does that mean? Mm. Right. On the other hand, you have some industries like agriculture, for instance, that will still need hydrocarbons in, in various forms for decades into the foreseeable future. Uh, again, certain technologies could come along that we don't have right now that could make that a very obsolete statement. But we're going to need some level of hydrocarbon production for some time. But as you say in the book, oil specifically is it's called a non-renewable for a reason. Yeah. It was really compelling to me. People told me that Charlie Munger, who is Warren Buffett's famous 90-something-year-old sidekick and as sharp as he ever was, had a view about all of this. And I thought, well, if you can get you know, a chance to talk to Charlie Munger, you better, you better take it. <laughs> and so I called him up and he kindly agreed to talk to me. And his point was, was that we all think about energy security, right, as very critical to, to modern countries. But food security is really important too. A nation has to be able to feed its people. And our ability to feed growing populations has been because of the use of hydrocarbons and fertilizers. And his point was, thus far, there's no substitute for those. There, there may be one. There may be a technology we don't know yet to get this stuff from the sun or whatever, but we're, we're not there yet. And so by drilling this stuff out of the ground at this frenetic pace as fast as we can, we're, we're making a big bet on 
our ability to feed our population in, in the future. And so his point was, why are we doing this? Why not just conserve it until we know we have another option? What's this whole push to flex our muscles and show that we can produce more oil than than Russia and Saudi Arabia? Why aren't we why aren't we importing it, buying it from them while we can and conserving our own? And I thought that was it was a really interesting and compelling argument. If I could just read another quote from your book, uh, there at the very end, you say, for the first time and perhaps forever, at least some long-term investors are aligned with conservationists, and they're trying to send a message that isn't drill baby drill, but rather drill thoughtfully and profitably so that more people benefit from America's resources for longer. And it isn't only executives getting a payday. Yep, (laughs) that about sums it up. the next episode of Boomtown, we take a deep dive into the complicated legacy of the father of fracking, George Mitchell. And just as everything else is bigger in Texas, we didn't feel like we could do justice to this story in 10 parts. So we're working hard on an 11th episode series finale. See y'all next week. Boomtown is a co-production of Imperative Entertainment and Texas Monthly. Executive producer is Jason Hope. Produced and engineered by Brian Standiford, who also wrote the score. Boomtown is edited by J.K. Nickel and Megan Kreit, and co-reported by Lee Riegstad. Our theme song is written and performed by Paik Rossi. I'm your host and writer, Christian Wallace. Texas Monthly's parent company also owns interest in the midstream oil and gas industry, among other diversified investments. Our editorial judgments are made independently of any such investments. Don't forget to tell your friends about Boomtown and leave a review on Apple Podcasts if you like the show. Boomtown is a 10-episode series with new episodes available every Tuesday. Follow us on social media and visit texasmonthly.com boomtown for more on the story. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.